Today on Blue 58, another week, another uncommon opponent. This time it's the Cincinnati Bengals, who would be a challenge for the Packers, even if they had traded for Stephon Gilmore this week. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode, even if it's a little bit later than usual as far as previews go. Apologies for that. Sometimes things just out of your control, but we are here now and we are ready to preview the Bengals and Packers. Not quite ready, I suppose, because there are things that we need to talk about prior to the Packers-Bengals game. There's a lot that happened this week in terms of personnel stuff in Green Bay. First, uh, the Packers did not trade for Stephon Gilmore. The former, now New England Patriots cornerback, made it known, or it was made known, that he would no longer be a member of the New England Patriots this week. And it sounded like it was all but a done deal that he was going to be cut. But very quickly, the Patriots realized, hold on a second, we can get something for Stephon Gilmore. And as it turned out, they ended up getting a sixth-round pick from not the Green Bay Packers, the Carolina Panthers. And I understand why that's frustrating for a lot of people, because it seemed from all reports that the Packers were at least one of Gilmore's preferred destinations, and the Packers were interested in having him around, but they did not offer up the sixth-round pick necessary to get him because they really didn't have the cap space to do so. And boy, actions have consequences, don't they? The Packers really couldn't get Stephon Gilmore. They didn't get him because of two things working together that changed it from a we-won't-get-him-to-we-can't-get-him. First, and we need to emphasize this up top, first, The Packers didn't trade for Stephon Gilmore because they thought they could get him, they thought they could sign him when he was released. It seems Gilmore wanted to go to Green Bay, or at least had interest in going to Green Bay, but the Patriots rightly identified that interest and they decided they would try to get something rather than nothing, and they could, and they did. So that is a miss by the Packers there. They thought they could get him, They thought wrong. But the second part of this is that the Packers had to wait to try to get Gilmore by signing him because they couldn't fit him under the cap. Slight asterisk there. He probably couldn't fit, yes. But there are almost always mechanisms of making that happen, even painful ones. There are people you could release to make that cap space. Lucas Patrick, right off the top of my head. According to OverTheCap.com, you could save about $1.9 million by cutting Lucas Patrick. And I think there's a case to be made there. If those numbers are correct, and I mean, I I can't check those numbers, so I'm assuming they are. That's a reputable site. But you'd have to weigh getting a potential starting cornerback versus the third or fourth or maybe fifth or sixth guard on your depth chart. If it's me as the general manager, that's not a difficult consideration. If I think Gilmore is good enough to sign and he's going to be one of my top three or four cornerbacks, that's a no-brainer over a backup guard. But, as it stood, without releasing people, the Packers could not sign Stephon Gilmore or could not trade for him. But why couldn't they? Why couldn't they fit Stephon Gilmore under the cap? Again, two reasons. First, they don't like to try to fit people under the cap. The Packers always want to pay as they go. They always want to have the space to make the moves that they want when they want to do them. They don't want to have to finagle the cap to make things work. And it is that's one of the reasons this offseason and this season to this point has been so unusual for the Packers because 
They've started doing that. They've started moving things around and being more aggressive because that's the state of the league now. You got to do those things. But they don't like to do that. So it was anathema to them to even try. That cannot be discounted. The Packers don't like to do this. And so that's why they were going to try to sign him after he was cut. But secondly, and more importantly, they already used their cap to sign other guys. And that brings us to Kevin King. I've always been against the Kevin King reacquisition. It seemed at the time that the Packers were bidding against themselves. And as it turned out, that was very much the case, especially at that price. They spent essentially $5 million on a guy who hasn't been good in a number of years. And even when he was good, it was mostly a couple fluky interceptions in the end zone that bolstered those numbers, coinciding with the one season of really anything resembling health in his career. In short, they spent $5 million on that guy. And that $5 million did a lot of work to prevent them from doing other things. And by spending that $5 million, they brought back a guy who did a lot of work to prevent them from going to the Super Bowl last year. They could have spent the same number or less on different guys. Desmond King signed for one year and $3 million. A.J. Bouye signed with the Carolina Panthers for two years and $7 million. Casey Hayward signed for one year and $2.5 million. Rasul Douglas, who the Packers apparently were interested in having anyway, signed for a year and $990,000. Ah, but are those guys better than Kevin King. Well, you be the judge. According to Pro Football Focus, in 2021, Kevin King's overall defensive grade is 50.4. His coverage grade is 47.1. Let's run those same numbers for these other guys. Rasul Douglas, notwithstanding, because the Packers got him anyway. What about King, Bouye, and Hayward? Well, Desmond King's 65.1 grade for overall on defense this year is better than King's. His 58.1 coverage grade is better than King's. A.J. Bouye, 62.1 and 69.1. Better and better. Casey Hayward, 84.3, 86.4. Better and better. Each of those guys is counting less against the cap this year than Kevin King is. The Packers did not have the opportunity to do stuff later because they spent the money on Kevin King. Kevin King and the Packers' fascination with him has cost the team Again, opportunity cost is real. This is it. But instead of Stephon Gilmore, the Packers get Rasul Douglas. Rasul Douglas is in Green Bay. Hello, Rasul. You aren't Stephen Gil- or Stephon Gilmore, but what exactly are you anyway? Well, you're a fairly big cornerback, six foot two, two hundred nine pounds, twenty seventeen third round pick by the Philadelphia Eagles out of West Virginia, six nine three relative athletic score at the twenty seventeen combine. Not terrible. And a four five nine forty yard dash. Not great. Ladarius Gunter territory. A little bit faster, not a whole lot though. But what he does have is some experience. Almost twenty five hundred career snaps, not snaps, not too bad, but but he hasn't been all that good either. In coverage over the last two seasons, according to Pro Football Focus, he's allowed eighty one completions on hundred and thirty seven targets for eight touchdowns and no interceptions. He's deflected or defense to pass seventeen times. Over the past two seasons, he has allowed a passer rating over 100 in both years. At least he's big. But he is not the only acquisition in Green Bay this week. The Packers also picked up former Cowboys linebacker Jalen Smith. An interesting story in and of himself. Six foot two, 245 pounds, a 2017, 2016 second round pick, and only just barely, 33rd overall to Dallas. 
Went to Notre Dame where he crossed paths with Matt LaFleur. That's part of the reason that he ended up in Green Bay. LaFleur knew, knew him, knew of him, and wanted him in Green Bay. Now he is in Green Bay. At Notre Dame, Smith played both inside and outside. He's been primarily an inside linebacker in the NFL. But at Notre Dame, he doors ACL in the 2016 Fiesta Bowl. Medical checks at the Combine confirmed some nerve damage, and that resulted in drop foot early in his career, which has apparently since faded, but it was a pretty serious thing for him for a while. Basically, that's muscle and joint weakness as a result of severe nerve damage. It's incredible that he played at all with that injury, and it's incredible that he's been able able to overcome it since then. Even with that injury, he managed to play in every game for the Cowboys from 2016, 2017 excuse me, through 2020. He's a pro bowler in 2019, but, but that's what he was. We need to talk about what he is and what he is not. First, what he is. What is Jalen Smith in 2021? First and foremost, he's a coverage guy. Historically, at least according to Pro Football Focus, he's been pretty good in coverage. His cover, coverage grades have been at or above good and frequently elite in his career to date, including this season. Starting in his rookie season of 2017, his coverage grades have been 76.1, 80.6, 60.8, 64.4, and 82.2 in 2021. For comparison, Devondre Campbell, the Packers' number one linebacker right now, only has two of the last four seasons with a grade above 70. He's at a 78.3, or he was a 78.3 last year, a 51.5 the year prior, 73.9 the year before that, and 41.1 the year prior to that. Oren Burks, considered a coverage linebacker, has never broken 60. Chris Barnes hovers in the mid to low 60s, and Ty Summers, who... Uh, Smith is at least, at the very least, going to replace, has graded out at a 28.3 and a 39.9 in his brief NFL career to date. And one of my lasting memories of the NFC Championship game last season was Ty Summers subbing in for was either an injured Christian Kirksey or an injured Chris Barnes in the championship game, and Tom Brady, Brady immediately going after him on the very next play. Uh, them's the bricks when you're short-armed Ty Summers. Smith is a sure tackler. He's never had a tackling grade below 67.1. And according to Pro Football Reference, whose charting data is a little bit different than some other sites, but still reputable and solid, his missed tackle percentage has gone down every year of his career, and it was never all that high to begin with. That's what he is. What is he not? At this point in his career, I struggle to call him a good athlete. Certainly not a great athlete. Word out of Dallas is that his knees are shot at this point. Maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't. He certainly was starting behind the eight ball in his NFL career with a gruesome torn ACL. Does this bother me that he is not all that athletic? I'm not sure. Athleticism is good, but it's not everything. Uh, Ty Summers is the best athlete the Packers have at linebacker right now. He is their worst linebacker. Oren Burks, very nearly the same level of athlete as Summers and only slightly better. Devondre Campbell is a good athlete, not a great one, but he's better than both of those guys. Chris Barnes is a worse athlete than Campbell. He, too, is better than Summers and Burks. So if Smith can at least get into the right spot and not miss tackles when he gets there, he's probably ahead of a couple guys on the depth chart already. It is also worth pointing out, though, that he is not a play-on-the-ball linebacker. No ball hawks, no things, nothing like that for him. No sacks this year, no tackles for loss, no interceptions, no passes defensed. None of it in 2021 so far. 
in four games with the Dallas Cowboys. Now, his snaps have been down, but in over 100 snaps, he hasn't made any plays on the ball. If you're hoping for playmaking, you are going to be disappointed. The bottom line, though, he has to just answer one question. Is he an upgrade at spots three through whatever on the depth chart? And I think probably yes. If you have appropriately low expectations about impact, I think you're probably going to be happy with Jalen Smith. And considering right now that he's only costing the Packers about $800,000, actually less than that, I'm happy. I can live with that. That's this week with the Packers so far. Let's talk about the Cincinnati Bengals. 3-1 and one so far in the year, the Cincinnati Bengals. But the big question, are they legit? Well, about that. On the one hand, Joe Burrow has looked like a top pick for the first time in his career so far. On the other, they've played practically nobody so far this year. They beat the Vikings in overtime in Week 1. They lost to the Bears. They beat the Steelers. They beat the Jaguars. Okay, not exactly a murderer's row. How are they in one-score games? Well, 2-1 and one so far this year, so maybe a little bit fluky, too. They beat the Vikings by 3. They beat the Jaguars by 3. They lost to the Bears by 3. Their expected wins and losses so far this year, 2.5 and, and 1.5. And Slight overachievers, put it that way. In terms of the practical stuff, they have the number 8 scoring defense and the number 20 scoring offense, but they are 5th in passing touchdowns. They want to throw, so let's talk about that throwing offense. They are captained or quarterbacked or whatever by Joe Burrow, the six foot four, two hundred and twenty one pound second year man out of LSU, former number one overall pick. He tore his ACL after ten games in twenty nineteen, but is coming back strong this year. Seventy two point eight percent completion rate on his passes this year for nine hundred and eighty eight yards, nine touchdowns, and four picks. How's he doing it? Basically a spread-style offense, which is what he ran at LSU to perfection. Lots of horizontal passing. His average depth of target is just 7.9 yards this year. Not super short, but not super deep either. For comparison, Aaron Rodgers is at 8.9 yards this year. That's way up for him. He was at 7.4 yards last year. So almost midway between 2020 Aaron Rodgers and 2021 Aaron Rodgers. 2021, Rodgers has been a little bit more bombs away. 2020, he was conservative but still pushing the ball from time to time. Burrow's a little bit more on the push-it-downfield side, and that, I think, has to do a little bit with his personnel because that brings us to where the Bengals are strong. They've got weapons, especially in the passing game. Lots of guys to catch the ball, starting with Jamar Chase, the fifth overall pick this spring, 17 catches, 297 yards, and four touchdowns. After a rough preseason, he has shown everybody why he deserved to be the fifth overall pick. T. Higgins is also doing some work for the Bengals. He is injured, but is expected to play this week, the 2020 second-round pick. I thought he was a possible Packers target in that draft. We all know how that went down. Taken 33rd overall right after where the Packers may have picked, or would have picked had they stood pat at 30, and pretty close to where I would have imagined they'd have been trying to trade back, although that gets complicated if the Bengals wanted to jump up to 30 and get Higgins. Well, maybe the Packers could have taken Jordan Love at 33 then, and that's an entirely different ball of wax at this point, too. Uh, Higgins has 10 catches through 118 yards, or four 118 yards, and two touchdowns in two games. Again, he has been banged up a little bit this week, this season, but he is expected to play this week. Tyler Boyd, Boyd finally, is the secret headliner for the Bengals. He is uh, second on the Bengals in yards and leads the team in catches. He could tear the Packers up if they don't have somebody who can slow him down in the slot. What about their vulnerabilities? Where are the Bengals vulnerable? I would point to their offensive line. This could be a function of how much they pass, but they have the ninth worst adjusted sack rate in the NFL, according to Football Outsiders. 
Sacks, of course, a great way to derail a passing offense, though, so any work the Packers could do there would be great. Get after Joe Burrow. He takes a lot of sacks. The Bengals give up a lot of sacks. Get after the quarterback. I know easier said than done, especially in a game where the Packers are going to be a little bit banged up in the secondary, but we at least have to point it out. Who then should we know about on the Bengals' offense? Let's start with running back Joe Mixon. He is questionable this week, but I want to point him out because of, well, a couple of interesting things. First, Bengals, uh, first Mixon, excuse me, is getting the ball a lot, even though in a pass-heavy offense, the Bengals do not really throw to the backs at all this year, or have not thrown to them at all this year. Mixon leads the non-receivers and tight ends in targets with nine on the season through four games. That's not all that much. But he is still averaging more than 20 touches a game. He's only averaging 4.3 yards per carry, but just be aware of him because if he plays, he's going to be getting the ball a lot, and he's going to be running hard when he gets the ball. What are the Packers going to be seeing when they take on the Bengals' defense? In terms of strengths, you got to point to the Bengals' run defense. They are sixth by DVOA through seven or through four weeks. They are seventh by overall Pro Football Focus grade. Defensive lineman DJ Reader is leading the charge. There, six foot three, two, three hundred forty-seven pounds. Look for big number ninety-eight in the middle of the Bengals' defense. He has a sack and two tackles for loss. He's pushing the pile in the middle. Where are the Bengals vulnerable then? Well, I would say they are bending but not breaking in the passing game. Even in the against the lineup of teams they've faced so far, they are allowing scores on almost 30% of their defensive drives, 28.6% to be precise. That is 29th in the NFL, and they're giving up a lot of yards through the air as they do it. Who should you keep an eye on on defense? How about linebacker Logan Wilson? Six foot two, 241 pounds in his second season out of Wyoming. He leads the team in tackles and is their fourth highest graded player on defense, according to Pro Football Focus. He has an 8.83 relative athletic score, and I point that out because he would have been a phenomenal fit for what the Packers like from their linebackers, and he went just three picks after A.J. Dillon. Every choice to go after one thing is a choice to deny something else. In terms of production ratio and ball hawks, you should be aware of a few names in both areas. Really, One name in Ballhawks, that's Logan Wilson, because he's got seven on the year. Nobody else has more than three, and that includes B.J. Hill, who leads the team with three sacks. Uh, And his production ratio is top on the team, too. 1.5 on the season for for the year. Uh, Larry Ogunjobi is next with 1.25 in his production ratio. More more on the tackles for loss side for him. Uh, He is getting behind the line of scrimmage, though, but he is questionable for Sunday. Behind them, you've got Sam Hubbard and Trey Hendrickson, both with production ratios of 8.75. Last time the Bengals and Packers played was week three of 2017. The Packers were always good for some early season weirdness under Mike McCarthy. This was that game. Packers got their butts kicked in the first half, down 21-7 at the break. That was thanks in part to an Aaron Rodgers pick six at home. A rare sight, to be sure. That was the only Packers, or the only Packers TD scored in the first half was by Lance Kendricks. Here's a name for you from the past. The Packers, though, came back in the second half. Jordy Nelson scored two touchdowns, including one with 17 seconds to go to force overtime. Then in overtime... Needs to get to the 31 for a first. They got him off sides. Down the field. He's open! Wide open! Allison cuts back. They got him another move. He's got Jones in front of him. He gets past him, and he's down to the six. 
Geronimo Allison. Geronimo Allison coming through with a big play in overtime, 72 yards, part of a six-catch, 122-yard afternoon for him. That set up the game-winning field goal. Bunch of other weirdness from this game. Josh Jones had his only good game with the Packers, 12 tackles, two sacks, three tackles for loss. Ahmad Brooks also had a sack. Remember him? If you don't, that's fine. I wouldn't be surprised. Aaron Jones was active in week three of his rookie season, but thanks, Mike McCarthy, only played 13 snaps on special teams. No touches on offense. Also, Martellus Bennett was there. Enjoy that memory. So what's going to happen on Sunday? I do think the Packers are going to win, but I do not feel good about that prediction. This feels to me like it's going to be a shootout, and shootouts are going to be hard to predict. The Packers should not have problems moving the ball against the Bengals. But the Packers may have trouble stopping the Bengals from moving the ball, too. No Jair. Kevin King looks like he's going to be back in the lineup. A pass rush that has been hit or miss through four weeks so far. I think the Bengals are going to be able to throw. And I think it's going to be above the over-under. And I think it's going to be in the 30s for both teams. Give me the Packers, let's say 34, Bengals 31. And the Bengals are going to have the ball with a chance to win it late. People are not feeling too confident about this one either. After... People outright predicted a loss against the 49ers team. Our folks bounced back with a win last week, win prediction last week of 95.2% people voting for a win. This week, that's down to 83.8%, tied for the second lowest figure on the season. And that reflects an overall shift downward in people's sentiments towards the Packers. Overall approval rating for the team sits at just 77.6% this week. That's down from 86.7% the week prior. Uh, Brian Gutekunst taking a hit this week after, I guess, the failing to follow through on the Stephon Gilmore situation, uh, down to 55.6, a 21.8% drop week over week. Matt LaFleur stays strong in the mid-90s. Aaron Rodgers leveling out in the upper 80s. The defense is trending in the right direction. 22.6% of voters approve of the overall defensive performance. Most people are neutral now on the defense, just 15.9% disapprove about 66% sitting right in the middle. And that is reflected in uh, the approval rating for Joe Barry as well. Uh, He is sitting at 15.9% approve, 15.9% disapprove. Perfectly balanced, as all things should be. People are slowly, slowly formulating an opinion opinion on Joe Barry, and I think that's great. Uh, Take your time and come to your conclusions there. So, predicting a Packers win on Sunday... Uh, I think uh, think it's going to be a wild game. It's going to be fun to watch, and there's going to be a lot of scoring. Uh, settle back, get ready for a good one, and we'll be back with you after the game for a recap of how the Packers are doing through five weeks. That's all I've got for you on this episode. Appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you uh, doing whatever you can to support the show, whether that's donating on Patreon or just helping out a friend uh, by telling a friend about a, a great Packers podcast that you enjoy. Because if you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it. If you tell somebody else about it, that's going to get more people involved in this this whole deal we're doing here and ultimately help more people become smarter Packers fans. Because as I, as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.